Hello everybody, Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says for you. In this episode, I get to talk with Alison Whitaker, who has been on my list to talk to on the podcast for a very, very long time. The opportunity to chat with Alison came up because she's just put out a new anthology called Firefront from University of Queensland Press, which is an anthology of 53 poems from Indigenous writers plus five essays. And I got the chance to read it this week. And uh, yeah, I, I am thinking as I'm recording this that you probably don't know that this book is out because you can't go to a bookshop, at least at the time of recording this. And so you can't do that thing where you sort of browse around the poetry section and figure out, oh, this is a great new book, um, which, is, which is a real shame because this is a really exciting, challenging, difficult for a white reader uh, such as myself and and yeah really phenomenal anthology so we dig deep into that into the process of putting it together the thinking that Alison did behind its structure and the decisions that she made and the questions that the anthology raises it raises a lot of unanswerable questions which I think is really cool we also talk a little bit about Alison's own work as well and primarily around the responses to her work. I wanted to dig more into the actual writing that she's done, but I kept getting sidetracked by the issue of the response, which I'm a bit frustrated with listening back to this and editing it. But the response is also just as interesting to me, at least, hopefully to you as well. Questions of who is Alison writing for and and who is she not writing for and what have the responses been and how those responses shaped her approach as she goes on to write her next work. As with all the interviews I've recorded recently, it's a weird time, it's a weird setting, and so we start out by talking about just how difficult it is to think into the future. And as I'm recording this, I'm thinking, I'm going to put this out in about a week, two or three weeks, and I don't know what the world's going to look like then, but hey, hopefully it is looking good. Hopefully it's on the up. I don't know. I hope you're well at least. Thanks for listening. What does writing and reading look like in your life at the moment? Yeah, at the moment there's, um, so to put it in context, not that I think this is going to go out in a post COVID-19 world, but, um, yeah, COVID-19 has changed a lot of parts of my life, including how I read and write. So my writing has been on hold, at least in the poetic sense, for a little while. Um, I've kind of come into a bit of existential stress about like why it is that we, we do poetry and whether it's effective for social change in the way that I want it to be. Um, and so writing had kind of been on pause for a little while because of that. Um, and it was nice to be in the position of a reader, just to be absorbing what other people have put out there without the expectation that I would turn it in any meaningful way into myself and do writing based on it. Um, but as the stress of the current situation has grown, I found it really hard to give the attention to poetry that it deserves. I think for me, at least, it's really, really hard for me to read poetry while I'm restless. Um, so I've been sitting with uh, Ellen Van Nieven's new release, 
throat um, beside my bed for the last two weeks and just cannot bring myself to open it because I know that it is going to be a spectacular second collection from Ellen. Um, and I want to make sure I'm in the right space to give it the first read that is as loving and careful as they are as a poet. Yeah, I, I so strongly relate to so much of that. First of all, in terms yeah. of writing, just, you know, what is it to write a poem right now, to write anything and reading as well. I was thinking this morning, it's kind of like being on a really stressful writer's retreat because you have all this <laughs> time and no focus, or at least in my case, very little focus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I share that 100%. Yeah. Some days are better than others, though. No, that is true. <laughs> that is true. Um, and I'm doing a bit of a different kind of writing at the moment in that I'm doing a PhD, which is its own weird genre with its own weird protocols and stuff. Um, but part of it's writing a research proposal, which is um, because I'm part-time to plan out the next eight years, which it's so hard to envision what the future is going to be like next week, <laughs> let alone trying to create this really weird bureaucratic futuristic document <laughs> that tries to predict what I'm going to be able to do over the next eight years. It's really bizarre. So yeah, I share that sense of um, dread and not knowing how to situate anything and that really affecting the process. Mm, wow. Yeah. Mapping out eight years into the future. That's, I mean, I guess you just sort of write in like incredibly hedged terms, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> God, that sounds like its own, yeah, its own particular challenge. Is there anything that is bringing you comfort at the moment in terms of literature, entertainment, things like that? I, no, I wish. I was trying to think of um, the most generous way to put it but I just I'm, I'm not feeling very comforted right now by much I've toyed this over in my head I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking or getting comfort I think it is a, a primal need that we all have but I just whenever I personally kind of try to read things that'll distract me or comfort me um, I just end up hyper fixating on how different they are from the reality that we have at the moment. So yeah, I am seeking, but not getting a lot of comfort from stuff. But I think that has more to do with the, I don't know, the fickleness of the reader than anything else. And that's the frustrating thing as a poet. You can put whatever you want out there into the world, but you can never really control the context in which it's read what it's going to mean to someone yeah i've i've noticed that question coming up again and again both in your work and the, the thinking that you've done around it and the interviews that i've read and mm -hmm. also it's a huge question in firefront i feel like it's almost on every page of this anthology so maybe if we if we turn to that mm -hmm. i've just finished reading it for the first time and like you said, you know, the, the focus isn't, I don't feel the focus is there enough for me to have done the in-depth kind of reading that perhaps I would have wanted to, but at the same time, mm. I didn't want to pass up this chance to talk to you, but <laughs> I, I do have, I did want to hear about 
first of all, just the structuring of the anthology. So it's 53 poems and there are five interstitial essays. And I just thought as I was going through it that that was such a sensible and weirdly obvious way to organise an anthology. And I wondered why I hadn't seen it more often because, you know, traditionally there's the introductory essay and then a bunch of poems and that's just how it sits. So I wondered Mm. if you could talk first about that decision. Yeah, so Firefront is an anthology that was, it's kind of meant to provide a collective memory of this big black renaissance that's happening in verse over the last 10 years or so, but precedented by lots and lots of work that First Nations poets had done to create the circumstances in which we could flourish. So to that end, I'd seen Firefront as a collective effort. Um, And the reason it's structured with the essays in particular is to reflect that Indigenous poetry has a a broader relevance for the Indigenous public that goes beyond how poets read and interpret poetry um, and actually has a a meaningful, personal, intergenerational and um, sociopolitical impact on us as a peoples. Um, So I wanted to have these five essayists to reflect on what ended up being like roughly nine, 10, 11 poems and what they personally meant to them. And each essayist brought something really different to the table that reflected their own positionality in receiving the poem, if that makes sense. Um, And provided like a really pluralistic voice, I think, for responding to the poetry in a way that I really wanted to take the focus off myself as a curator um, and to acknowledge that we're forming kind of a a collective understanding of these poems. It's not just about this elevated sense of picking out definitive poems as if they're going to have any authority as an editor. Yeah, it really strongly has that sense of a conversation, Mm. which I really, really loved. And I definitely got the feeling that this was a conversation that was while I was welcome to listen to it as as a white reader I wasn't necessarily it wasn't for me and yeah I wondered if that was something also that was on your mind as the editor oh absolutely I mean it's nice to as an editor not have only one chance to situate the poems in their context Um, as is kind of the traditional sense with the upfront editor's essay followed by the collection of poems. It, I think, makes it more obvious to readers who are outside the community that's talking to one another how they should be interpreting these poems or how they should be engaging with them. Um, So in a sense, it's like someone is guiding people through the reading, allowing them to take breath after 10 poems and then guiding them through the reading again. And the relationality is really, for me, what's at the core of that. That's part of the reason they're all grouped into themes as well. There's a sense that no one poem has to carry the weight of the theme by themselves. And they can all engage in that conversation with one another uh, in a way that's um, sheltered a little bit from the uh, patronising white gaze by the essay introducing them. 
shelter. Yeah, there is there is a feeling of it of sheltering as well, which um, really strongly comes through. There's a, a line in your um, Cordite interview with Susie Anderson <laughs> and um, that I, I'm hoping it's okay for me to quote back to you because I think it's very funny. You Go say, for it. Currently my work is being read by a majority of people who have popular be, popularly become known as the Sydney Writers' Festival crowd, the kind with resin jewellery and linen shirts who swoop up to you after an event to tell you how important your work is such a great quote and I guess I can't help but ask in terms of this anthology while within itself there is that conversational intergenerational interpersonal sense and the work of the essays in in sheltering the poems it still has to exist in that broader field I guess um Mm. And I wonder if you have any particular hope for what that broader response might be from readers, reviewers, critics, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, again, it's an interesting time. Um, so this book got was meant to be released in May. It got pushed forward to late March by virtue of the situation, I guess we call it. Um, and so I haven't had the chance to kind of do that panicky reflective work that you usually do in the lead up to a publication date it just kind of happened with or without me I am always anxious in that period when I get it uh, about how a book is going to be received and interpreted and if it's going to be interpreted responsibly or even if I've left too many gaps in interpretation that are just going to be filled by the usual expectations that are projected onto Indigenous poetry. I think having learned a bit from Black Work and Lemons and the Chicken Wire and then moving on to Firefront, which is, for me at least, uh, as editor, a project that's about being responsible to other Indigenous poets rather than trying to shape their meaning, Um, I was really conscious of wanting to safeguard their work Um, And to make sure that in the editing process, as well as in the reading process, that they were being respected, the context of the poem was being respected, and the relationships surrounding the poem were being respected as well. Once you surrender it out into the world, you don't have as much control over that anymore. I'm learning to accept that. A key strategy, I suppose, of these anthology projects in particular that try to capture or distribute key works in a literary movement is that they're usually targeted at education institutions, uh, schools, universities. So you do have maybe a little bit more control in that targeting than otherwise because there's a curriculum to link it to. You can provide teaching guides. But given the situation, (laughs) um, schools and universities are probably not that likely to engage with this work in that way, being kind of put in a holding pattern. So it's a bit of an open question for me about who this book is going to reach. I've been really personally as a editor and a reader really deliberate in trying to get this book 
out to mob um, and developing a really direct relationship-based strategy for getting it out there, sending author copies to people who are, I guess we'd identify them as like key First Nations poetry readers, even if they're not themselves poets, getting it out to them um, as part of that relational responsibility that the work has and just crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. I'm excited to see how people respond to this work. I have small and fragile hope that holding people's hands a little bit more tightly through the use of the introductory essays is maybe going to prevent some of either the the misreading of these works or white readers looking for themselves in these works. And I just hope, given the current circumstances, that it actually gets out there, that this is a, a book that people pay attention to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do as well, and I hope that it does eventually find its educational audience as well as all the other audiences that you mentioned. I, I wanted to ask too about just the the exercise of creating an anthology. And you mentioned in your introduction a number of the other anthologies that this one is sort of indebted to or comes mm. from a lineage of. And you also mentioned the, lim- the limits of this particular anthology. Are there limits to the other anthologies that you think Firefront tries to go beyond. You mentioned there a little bit about holding people's hands a little bit more tightly, which I definitely felt as a reader. Um, Mm -hmm. Are there other things that you intentionally did that you thought, well, this hasn't really been achieved yet in this kind of an anthology? Great question. I feel like the, this was crafted alongside the existing anthologies rather than learning from any of their limitations. In doing so, I really want to acknowledge that those other anthologies had, I guess you call it like a, a more specific character to them. They were often really concerned with ori- the development of original poetry in writers' collectives in particular especially some of those earlier anthologies where Mob would write together and publish together. And it was this kind of this weaving of poetic styles in a way that had individual authorship, but created an anthology that was greater than the sum of its parts. The practice of using the essayists was less a response to those anthologies as much as it was trying to honour their ethos of shared meaning-making and trying to do that in a way where for this anthology of poems, for Firefront, we were looking at poems that had already been published and sent out into the world rather than created for purpose. So I was really careful to make sure that this didn't just read as kind of a a listicle of, um, you know, 101 Aboriginal poems you have to read before you die, um, (laughs) but actually kind of had some kind of unified but not uniform meaning. So I definitely learned that 
from those anthologies. And it is kind of a pleasure to, I really encourage you to get your hands on any of them if you can, to kind of um, dive into this moment, especially the earlier anthologies of First Nations poetry that was just crackling with the energy of possibility and that was clearly trying to undermine the colony, was active trying to undermine the colony, but it was also so full of um, joy that this was being done together with a, a degree of purpose. Definitely get your hands on one of them. There's a couple floating around in public libraries if you're lucky enough. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. Are there any any that you would name in particular that would be good for people to look for? Or Yeah, they're mentioned in the introduction. So um, Us Mob Writing, which was edited by the late Arnie Carey Reed Gilbert. Um, Inside Black Australia, which was edited by Kevin Gilbert. And um, from memory, All Gunnaby's Mob which was edited by the late uh, Auntie Ruby. All fantastic collections, but difficult to get <laughs> to get a hand on right now. There's um, a few of them in university libraries, which I think once lockdown is lifted to a relative degree, will be more accessible to the public. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just hearing you say that makes me think about all those poetry books just lying there in the University of Melbourne Library. Just I know. Quietly, oh, just God. quietly lying there. Um, you you um, put it really well, I think, just in saying that this anthology is unified but not uniform. Mm. One thing that really struck me is is its pluralism, not just in terms of style, which is an obvious one even as you just look through it briefly, but also the way it works across time. Um, there are uh, pieces included here that were published, you know, quite a, quite a few years ago and really, mm. really recent pieces. And yeah, I think, I think that's a, a huge success of it. I think it's, it just allows it to do so much more work. And it also, it raises so many questions as well. And one of the things that, that I love about these questions is, they all feel entirely unanswerable. So Bruce mm. Pascoe writes in one of his introductory essays, one of the introductory essays, he says, just straight up, is poetry enough? And there's no answer to that. It just, it just sits out there as a question. Mm. And one of the other, other questions that I think is sort of on every page is um, what is it to write poetry in the language of the coloniser? And again, mm -hmm. there's no answer to that so yeah yeah I, I like that too the um allowing things to be unresolvable is um a really important part of um decolonial practice i think like acknowledging that the enduring relationship that was established through the violence of the settler colony is going to mean that we'll never be able to answer some questions definitively and just leave them there as if that's resolved. Like it's a, it's an ongoing question. It's an ongoing fight even to work through the structures that underpin these questions. And I think, yeah, that um, in Heidi Norman recently put together this project about how the media represents 
Aboriginal political aspirations. And one of the key findings of um, that was that there was this theme in media reporting that saw, quote unquote, you know, Aboriginal affairs, Indigenous issues as being without reconciliation, without completion, um, and therefore unworthy of our full critical attention or effort. Uh, and I see kind of this um, poetry as being a, a response that sits alongside that, kind of just playing in that irreconcilability and making sure that people can mobilise around it so that it becomes a tangled, complicated path rather than a wall. Mm. Or something linear that could move towards a resolution and then we're done. Mm. There's, a, there's a poem in here. Um, I hope I can remember the title. Actually, I think it's probably in Black Magic and it just mentions Kevin Rudd saying sorry. Oh, yeah. That is <laughs> just like that, that, that moment. I, I remember that moment very vividly. I was working at the National Library at the time and, you know, a lot of the, uh, the, the ladies with the resin jewellery and the linen shirts, we all went up to, the, um, to this room and we watched the, we watched the uh, apology and then we watched um, the horrific speech that came after. And, you know, I think we all oh, left God. that room feeling very self-congratulatory and like there mm. was some form of resolution. And I think the thing that an anthology like this and, and work like, like so many of these poems remind us is that these are not, these are not solvable issues. And, and it's not about, I mean, I felt really deeply, I'm talking a lot about my own response to this book, but I, I did feel okay. very, very uncomfortable reading it. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I think that that's just an important and good thing that I like, I hope that that other, other white readers read it and feel just as uncomfortable. Um, mm. I don't know if that's something that you're aiming for or not, but, or that you, if you care or not. Um, it's, it's something you just kind of come to have a, an expectation of. I think the discomfort is good. People will usually find people, um, white fellows will usually find a way to derive comfort from any text because it's, it's a horrible thing to have to sit with discomfort, there's a an instinct. Robin D'Angelo talks about it in White Fragility to kind of move to a place where white people don't feel like they're implicated in racism and that they can ignore it or that they are on the right side of it. And Janet Mawinney calls like a similar idea, like settler moves to innocence. Like people will give the reading that they feel makes them the most innocent in what's being described. Yeah, there's a lot in anti-racism and organising discourse that I think is also useful in how we begin to think about poetry from Indigenous and First Nations people in particular and how it's engaged with not only at the level of the individual reader but at the level of the industry that comes to shape all the commercial decision-making that goes behind a publication like this that shapes perhaps sometimes more than the author themselves, how a publication is read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's another question that I think the, the existence of the anthology and the fact that it's published by University of Queensland Press, it just really highlighted to me, like, 
settler language and culture creates a boundary that this work exists within. And there's a really uh, beautiful mention in Ali Kobiekman's essay where she talks about uh, a moment where she was sharing poems with other poets around a campfire and those poems were read once to that audience and then they were burned on the campfire. And I, I think the point that, that Ali Kopiekman was making there is that there's, that doesn't make that poem any less, uh, I guess, legitimate, worthwhile, important mm. than something that might end up, you know, printed on a page that, that gets distributed around. Yeah, and I think about all the poems that didn't make it to these pages for whatever reason, whether they are deliberately withheld from the page, um, whether they are created uh, in, in someone's head with no intent of publication, but also the ones that are kind of deemed unpalatable by the publication industry, especially earlier on when uh, there wasn't so much of a commercial or publication interest in Indigenous poetry that subverted political order as we currently know it but also that subverted the way that we make meaning there's more space for that now than there was previously and that's I suppose another limitation of this collection is that it's really just an anthology of published First Nations verse that is kind of now only really having the renaissance that we can describe in the public space because it's moving into the public space. This poetic practice, this innovation has kind of always existed. So it's just, I suppose, firefront the publication, speaking to the publication of other poems, but itself could not even hope to, to kind of capture the fullness of what's actually going on. Another thing that I think, the anthology does is it works against what you talked about earlier. And I think you mentioned this in your introduction as well, just the, the expectations that are placed on indigenous literature, the, the weight of that expectation. And I was wondering if that's something that you might be able to articulate, like what are those expectations specifically? Yeah, I think the expectation depends on the reader. Um, but there's a, a core expectation of um, palatability that in both the form and the content of the poem that it's going to be reconcilable to the, the values and ideals and to the particular tastes of the reader. An ungenerous reading of that would be that uh, settlers read Indigenous literature to project themselves onto it. Uh, and so they will find a way to read their assumptions into a work, no matter what they get. So there's that palatability slash blankness relationship like a, there. Yeah. Yeah. Like an assumption that this work exists for me uh, to educate me, to make me feel better, to help me to understand a certain piece of history. Yeah, kind of. Or that it would it, it always have a relationship to that reader that is, I suppose, I suppose the palatability is a secondary question then because it's about whether this is going to be as a matter of form and content taste, whether it's going to be something that the reader can swallow easily. Because often uh, I think 
there's not as much resistance now to critical literature that paints settlers as they were, paints the, the complicity, uh, paints the, the biases, the discrimination, the violence. There's more of that, I think, now that's able to be engaged with in the settler public. And there's in some ways a bit less resistance to those narratives as there was previously. But as long as they offer a path to redemption or that kind of palatability about which settlers are the evil ones, um, they can be accepted. Whereas others that maybe target the audiences that are more likely to read Indigenous poetry and highlight their complicity are facing both a bit more resistance and they also are getting consumed by this desire for white self-flagellation as social justice, as if it's just enough to confess and be told of privilege rather than doing anything about it per se. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of a... Put it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, um, this treatment of poetry as the end game, which we know it's, it's really not. It's the beginning of something. Uh, and that, I guess that brings us to like the last thing that I think is asked of or expected of Indigenous literature and poetry in particular is kind of like an action plan or a way out, a resolvability. And so the failure for the failure of Indigenous peoples to provide hope about their own oppression is something that Chelsea Bond writes about a lot and whether kind of a, a more nihilistic approach is actually an act of care for one another and for our mobs. It's an interesting discussion, I think, going forward, but it's something Audrey Nunacol was put upon a lot as um, she would describe what was happening and the retorts would kind of be, well, what do you want us to do about it? And it's not just a problem confined to literature. It's a, uh, something that comes to meet Indigenous complaint wherever it's raised, the idea that we have to have a concrete path out of the grievances we describe in order for the grievances to be legitimate. Yeah, that sense of irreconcilability and lingering is something that's not very well received. Um, so John Unicole put out this poem which for the life of me is escaping me the title of it right now but it's effectively a bit of a cheeky action plan mm. um given to to unions to churches to to lawyers to journalists uh, it's one of my favorite poems both because it kind of it actually is a great action plan in its own right but my reading is of it is like well here's your action plan you can't see i didn't tell you <laughs> yeah you want it you want me to tell you what to do well here's what you could do here yeah. it is. Yeah. I wanted to ask too, because I've asked a lot about this anthology, but I wanted to broaden it out and ask more about your own work. You mentioned that at the moment, reading and writing looks pretty different for you. If we can project ourselves just a little ways into the future, maybe to, to some form of future where we're all able to move about again and maybe, maybe be in groups or yeah, there's some sense of normality. What are you excited to see happen again or to see more of if and when that comes about? Wow, that is 
such an exciting thing to think about in the current circumstances. Um, I'd be really excited to see some of what we were talking about earlier um, that Ali Kobi Ekerman mentioned in her essay in this anthology, which was people gathering to make poetry that may or may not leave the context in which it was made. Impermanence is something I'm very much craving right now at a time where the only way for us to kind of be with one another seems very, seems to create really permanent records or impacts or is surveilled in some way. The idea of having a private interpersonal conversation in poetry in particular seems really nice to me as well as kind of gathering by a fire, which I miss a lot right now. I don't know. I think I would enjoy that feeling maybe of getting a bit bored during a poetry reading if someone goes too long. <laughs> um, being being forced to sit with it. It's, if like it was an online poetry reading, you can just mute it and go about your day. <laughs> but being forced to to sit there and to feed off the energy of others' restlessness is kind of a weird pleasure in its own right. Oh, there's something so galvanizing about that moment, isn't it? When you just realize everyone else in the room also hates this. <laughs> yeah. They're overstaying. They're welcome on the stage. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a strange thing to be nostalgic or looking forward to like that's yeah. But I, I have to say, it seems like a real luxury to me as well. Like being able to be bored, being able to do that thing that, that I used to do, which is just the, you know, the French exit, just like I'm gone. <laughs> yes. I'm not there anymore. I'm out. I'm out walking around. Um, Perfect. What about for your, your own work? I feel like this is such a loaded question because you said at the start that you're, that you're writing this, this eight year plan, but also, not really able to think into the future, but, but I ask because I'm thinking about, um, you spoke a little bit in your interview for the feminist writers festival, um, Mm -hmm. about the the critical response to lemons in the chicken wire. It it concerns you because there was this sense of an exoticization of that work by some readers. Um, Mm. and then moving from that into black work, that being, I guess maybe, I don't know if you see it this way, but maybe moving a little bit more towards what you've done with Firefront, sort of protecting the work, making it more of a, of a conversation, even though that work is really, um, as a white reader, again, like really, really challenging to read. Is that, is that a fair, first of all, is that a fair through line to kind of like describe in your work or? Yeah, I mean... I think it is, it's certainly a gold of my work, but I'm not sure at this stage if I was kind of successful in doing the, first of all, the protection in black work that I was hoping to get was that by being less about facilitating uh, settler knowledge than by speaking back more overtly to it. I thought that was a strategy that would protect the work from the response that I didn't like with lemons and the chicken wire, which is that, as you described, the exoticization. That kind of didn't work either because it just it kind of, instead of the exoticization of my uh, personal experience at the intersections of queer and Indigenous, it became an exoticization of 
my speaking back. <laughs> like, um, so I'm not sure. I feel a bit out of control in that way that once you kind of surrender the work, whether people read it as that act of exoticization, whether they want to read you, the person, you, the racial position, rather than the work and with all the expectations that that carries. I'm worried that the same will happen to Firefront, but I've, I think, taken all the measures that I know of at this point to, in some ways, like shelter it from the act of being exoticized, but also leaning into what it is, um, which is a memory for us of this huge mass of poetry with purpose that's coming through. And if it can just be that for us and be a, a resource or a bibliography for external readers, then that I, w- I would consider it successful if it fills that inner purpose for our community. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm focusing way too much here on the response rather than, than the work itself, which, like, it's sort of shocking and, and devastating to think about the amount of, of work that and thinking that you are doing around that response. Like, that is not uh, work that as a white writer I've ever bothered to do. Um, yeah, so, and I, I think frankly. it's work. I think it's work that for anybody makes the work richer. Um, you know, you're kind of told not to write to audience expectations, and that's a good thing. But it can help to anticipate an audience, especially if you're writing from any minoritized perspective. I think um, First Nations people are the ones who suffer at the forefront of this phenomenon, but they're certainly not the only people who have been subjected to these same expectations. Um, I'm thinking of like women's trauma memoir, queer trauma memoir, what Kathy Burris and others described as the first person industrial complex. Like these expectations are a structural industry concern. So even if the author is not thinking about them, the editor and the publisher certainly are. So it helps to be, conscious I think and proactive in how we address it it's been a skill I wish I didn't have to develop but I'm 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 glad I did and there'll be lessons out of this too that I'll take to whatever happens next and that poets in here I'm sure will also have insight on that I don't yeah yeah and there's space for that all to unfold as well Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I also, I have no segue for this, but I just wanted to ask <laughs> you about, um, you wrote this review in, I think it was the Sydney Review of Books called um, The Colonial Fantasy, Why White Australia Can't Solve Black Problems, which is the, the, the name of the book, sorry, is, is that by Sarah mm. Madison. I feel like it's one of the best reviews I've ever read. <laughs> wow thank you it was so good I want to read it like six times it um it revealed and to me so much that I had never thought about 
and yeah, I guess I just wanted to say that and also say that I hope you get a review that thoughtful and and delicious for Firefront. Um, Thank you. I hope so too. Uh, did you ever um, have any interchange after that review was published with Sarah Madison or with anyone about that review? Yeah. Um, so Sarah Madison was quite gracious about it, actually. She shared it on Twitter, accepting it for what it was. It's it's contained in the review. I thought it was, um, you know, that old thing that you're taught if you study maths in high school is kind of like show your working. Yeah. So I was trying. I was trying to show my working um, to be completely, I don't know, fair to the process. Uh, but a book is never just a book, and so the author has responsibility, yes, for what they produce. But also so does the editor, so does the publishing house, so does the the marketer. And they all have um, this massive impact on how a book is read and, in effect, like the substance of the book and how it's received. So I hope it came across in that review that this is a a critique of the phenomenon that is kind of... um, introspective privilege publishing where it's a person from a dominant group writing about the concerns of a a non-dominant group in this case first nations people and where the writing itself is an acknowledgement that the book shouldn't be written and there's so many of these books out there which just seems baffling to me because they have this they're trying to render themselves redundant and yet there's more and more of them every year. Yeah. Well, I guess it's that sort of self-flagellation thing that you mentioned earlier as well. It's like, I hate to be the one to say this, but I'm going to say it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, um, it's not just like self-flagellation, but it's kind of this collective flagellation that everybody participates in, in a new way every year with the, the new, book about whiteness <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. that is written by a white person that no one pays attention to. And again, it's not, it's not a problem that Sarah Madison invented. <laughs> it's a, a broader tendency that goes far beyond the book, but the book is just a good example of it. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a brilliant review, so I will link to it and everyone listening do go and check it out because I imagine it took, it took quite a bit of writing as well. It's, oh, at the start, Dude, you it was so late. Yeah, you say oh, this review is four <laughs> months late and I was like, oh, God, that's such a great thing to admit. Um, I tried to pull out of it twice. <laughs> oh, my God, I've been tempted to do that a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, I've kept you for nearly an hour, so I, I better let you go about your day. What does what oh wow? The, what does the rest of the day hold? Uh, I got another interview. Oh, <laughs> uh, one o'clock, um, and then I will get back to that proposal for the next eight years of my life. Nice. Yeah. Nice. What about yourself? Um, I am doing some work for um, a client. Uh-huh. Um, so like, yeah, just kind of lovely, concrete, clearly delineated, do thing, thing is finished, you know. Oh, so, so good. Yeah, I'm very excited to dive into that. Yeah. That's the dream. Yeah. Yeah.
That's great. That's an (laughs) awesome place to cut it. (laughs) So much.